Hello and welcome to the Chorus and the Chaos Podcast. My name is Jack and I am, as always, joined by Grayson and Blake. And we have a very special guest with us today, uh, Professor Nancy Piercy. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see her there. And if you're just on the audio, um, you will hear her momentarily. So we're very excited to have her with us. Uh, we're continuing our theme in season two here on common struggles of the Christian life. And we've done a number of things so far. If you've gone back, you can obviously go back and listen to those. But struggles through Christian uh, regular regular prayer, scripture reading, evangelism, so on and so forth. And we're we're moving into common struggles as we in the current age, uh, thinking very, very uh, modern times as we look at sex, questions about sexuality and gender and things of this sort. And uh, Professor Piercy has been kind enough to join us to talk about her new book uh, coming out very soon, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. This will be, I, I'm, ex I'm expected to be an awesome book. I'm very much looking forward to reading it. Uh, but that'll help as we think about what masculinity is because there, I would argue, and I think everyone on this call would agree that when you think about a current struggle in our day for, for Christian Christianity, and in particular men, there is a struggle in our society for men to be men, right? Uh, I would I would contend and I'm everyone anyone feel free to chime in here. There is a growing trend and movement to make men more effeminate and kind of just remove uh, masculinity. And I would say maybe there's even a confusion about what masculinity is. Right. There may be varying different definitions. But before we do that, uh, if you're unfamiliar with Professor Piercy, I mentioned she's got a great book that we're very excited to uh, to look at. The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. That comes out June 27th. Uh, she's written a book called Love Thy Body, which I'm going to hold up here. This is, if you can see it there, uh, one of my favorite books, quite literally. It's it's fantastic. It was incredibly helpful for me thinking about, as I was not trying to understand the uh, philosophical and scriptural kind of uh, mindset for transgenderism, homosexuality, abortion, dealing with these issues in a very practical, but also very logical and scriptural way. It's an excellent book. Uh, other books, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, Total Truth is another one that I absolutely have loved, recommended it to a lot of people. Uh, she is a professor and scholar in residence at uh, Houston Christian University. Uh, she has been quoted uh, by us many times on the Facebook page. Uh, the New Yorker, Newsweek, which is more impressive than us, clearly, uh, highlighted as one of the five top women apologists in Christianity today and hailed by The Economist as, quote, America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. So that is a lot. Uh, Professor Piercy, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you. I'm going to have to live up to that intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's well, well worth it. We, truly your, your book on love thy body was, uh, I've, we've recommended it to many people that, that we've come across on our Facebook page and, and whatnot. It is brought so much clarity and biblical truth to these, to those topics that are so confusing for so many people. Uh, in our day. In fact, I've just, just two, three days ago, I told my wife, cause my daughter is 13, uh, that in the very near future, in the next couple years, uh, I'm going to try to work through her and, and read that book with her. Cause I think it's such an excellent resource on how to interpret, just understand all these things that the culture is throwing at her. Yes. I've heard from many parents who say they're doing just that. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it. So, but anyway, let's, uh, let's talk about masculinity. So, uh, Professor Piercy, you're, you've, you've written a book on it, so obviously you've had a lot of time to think about uh, masculinity and toxic masculinity. Uh, what, what drove you to even write on this subject? Well, certainly, as you said in the intro, um, in our day, masculinity is under attack. It's, it is being denigrated and demeaned. I start the book with several uh, colorful examples, provocative examples, uh, even from mainstream publications, like the Washington Post had an article that was actually titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? I thought, really? Wow. The Washington Post? This is not a fringe publication. Or the Huffington Post, where you might expect it more, but still, uh, an editor wrote that her New Year's resolution was to kill all men. Uh, books have come mm. out with titles like, I Hate Men, um, Are Men Necessary? No Good Men. You can buy t-shirts that say so many men so little ammunition and mm. to my surprise uh, as i was researching it I, I even found a fair number of men who are denigrating their own sex and this was more surprising but 
You may have seen uh, the most recent one was uh, the director of the movie Avatar. It was mm. tweeted out. It became kind of viral uh, where he said testosterone is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. Or mm. oh, and this one, this is Huey, what, Hugh Howie, who is a best-selling science fiction writer. And he got on the same, the, the same track. He says, uh, testosterone is the problem. Women should be in charge of everything. And there was even a book that said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. So obviously, um, I, I did feel that we needed a response. But what really triggered uh, my decision to write the book was finding out, um, digging into some of the sociological literature and finding out that Christian men break the mold. Um, that, again, again, uh, Christian men are usually considered to be the worst examples, right? They're often cited as um, right. the, the, the main, you know, exhibit A of toxic masculinity because they do tend to, if they're theologically conservative, they tend to believe in headship in the home. And so, and that was easy to find examples of as well, both Christians and non-Christians saying that um, conservative Protestantism leads to abuse. It, it mm -hmm. leads to um, men being overbearing, tyrannical patriarchs, uh, what else? Oh, it feeds the rape culture. Um, mm. Yeah, theology, theology of male hedge feeds the rape culture. So, again, my answer to that is these guys are not reading the literature of the social sciences because <laughs> sociologists and psychologists have been doing research, partly in response to these criticisms. They're like, well, wait a minute, what's the evidence? You guys are throwing all these accusations out there, but what's the evidence? Um, and so I have about, oh, about a dozen uh, sociologists and psychologists who actually did research. The trouble is it hasn't gotten out there yet. Uh, it, mm -hmm. It's still hidden away in the academic literature. So I, I said, okay, we need to know this. It turns out that committed evangelical men, in other words, those who uh, are really serious about their faith, who go to church regularly, test out as the most loving to their wives and by the way, they test the wives separately, which is important. <laughs> so the wives are reporting that they feel happy with the level of their husband's love and appreciation. Uh, the, they test out as the most engaged fathers, both in terms of shared activities like sports or church youth group, uh, as well as discipline, like uh, setting limits on screen time or setting bedtime. Yeah. They test out evangelical family men test out as having the lowest levels of divorce and they have test out as having the lowest level of domestic violence and abuse of any group in america and you probably say this is what people always say to me but wait a minute don't christians divorce at the same level of as the rest of the culture you know, we've all heard this right um <laughs> I read that it is one of the most commonly yeah. cited statistics by Christian leaders, yeah, which, which, you know, they're probably trying to motivate us. But so the, the, the researchers went back to the data and they made a distinction between truly committed Christian men who attend church regularly versus nominal Christian men. Nominal means in name only. I went over this in my class yesterday and most of the kids didn't, my, my undergrad students didn't know what nominal meant. So just to clarify, <laughs> nominal means in name only. In other words, these are people who in a survey like this might check the Baptist <laughs> box um, because of their cultural background and their family, but they're not really committed. They don't attend church regularly and their attitudes are, are largely shaped by the secular culture. These nominal Christian men test out, according to all the negative stereotypes, they have the worst marriages, their, their wives report the lowest level of happiness, um, hmm. they, they report the lowest level of connection with their children, they have the highest level of divorce, higher than secular men, and they have the highest rate of domestic violence and abuse of any group in America higher than secular men. This was stunning. 
Yeah. So so apparently the, these are men who kind of hang around the fringes wow. of the church enough to catch language yeah. like headship and submission, but they in, infuse it with secular definitions uh, like t entitlement and dominance and so on. So this is what, if you put these two groups together, you know, we've got men who are better than secular men and we have men that are worse than secular men, both claiming the evangelical label. And so most uh, studies just put them together and, and that's why the, the results get skewed. So the, the church needs to be aware of uh, you know, what we're up against, that we do have a lot of men who yeah. claim the evangelical label, but are not living not living up to it. And they're, they're ruining, the, ruining the reputation for everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel like all the statistics I see, and I don't have anything handy, but I couldn't just to mind, I always feel like I see this headline of something along the lines of um, abuse rates or divorce rates, or we'll pick the category, whatever it is, right? The same among the secular world among Christians. Like you just, you tend to see that, that accusation, as you pointed out, like it seemed that's the, that's the line that people put out, but it's really encouraging because yeah. my, my experience would say as I, as I, as a committed Christian and being in church with other evangelicals, I don't see that like in my personal life. So that makes a lot more yes. sense, right? Cause yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and because you and I probably hang out mostly with committed Christian men, I, I don't know about you, but I thought the nominals were probably a small group, <laughs> but yeah. at least one study I read, no, they're the same size. They're about the same size numerically mm. speaking. So that when a man claims to be evangelical, you have about a 50-50 chance of him being really committed or being nominal. But right. uh, let, let me give you one quote, um, because this was in the New York Times. Um, the, the main researcher, my, my sort of go-to sociologist, was um, is, is Brad Wilcox. Brad Wilcox teaches at UVA, uh, University of Virginia. He's, uh, I forget, is it, uh, the name of the, it's marriage, oh, it's, Institute for Family Studies, Institute for Family Studies. Anyway, um, he is considered perhaps the top marriage researcher in the nation. And uh, he got an article published in the New York Times. The, there had been an article saying, claiming that the happiest marriages were the progressive ones. This hmm. was written by a secular progressive. So he, he wrote an article saying, uh, and by the way, this was for Valentine's Day. So that, that was kind of the hook. He said, well, yes, sorry. <laughs> um, he said, yes, progressive marriages are better than the average because they're actually very intentional. But he said, let me show you my evangelicals. <laughs> That's a J curve. The evangelicals mm. are much higher than even the best of the secular marriages. And here's how he put it. Uh, I have the quote here in my notes. It turns out that the happiest of all wives in America, uh, you know, they're, they're testing the wives because you, the, uh, the charge is that these marriages are, are oppressive to women, right? That they silence women, that they're mm. abusive to women. So the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Mm. Full 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. Mm. So he gets the, I'm amazed that the New York Times published this. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Wow. So the happiest wives in America, just in terms of sheer objective empirical research, are religious conservatives who, with their husbands, hold gender uh, conservative gender values. So this is astonishing. Yeah. Um, this is this has to get out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I can see. Wow, that's incredible. That, those are incredible statistics, truly. That and that is so in opposition to the to the mantra that's just pushed in the public about. I mean, it's right. it's the complete opposite. It's the complete opposite. Yeah. And, and while we're on Brad Wilcox, since he's our you know our top sociologist, by the way, he's Catholic, and uh, he says Protestants, evangelical Protestants, do better than Catholics. So he he doesn't really have a dog in this fight. He's not. Yeah. You know, it's not like an. A, evangelical who is trying to defend evangelicals. Right. You know, he wasn't out to do that. But he did write about the nominals in Christianity Today, by the way. Um, and he did say, um, oh, here it is. The most violent husbands with the italicized, the most violent husbands in America are nominal evangelical Protestants who attend church infrequently or not mm. at all. 
so his hmm. he's the one who went back and, and made this distinction, you know, between mm -hmm. committed evangelicals and nominals. Yeah. And this is what he's found. So so this is kind of what we're up against in trying to understand these issues in the church is that we have both, we have both the best and the worst out there. So we, we should really, mm. you know, continue to support the men who are doing well. In fact, here's another quote uh, from Brad Wilcox. It's so cool. He's, he's talking to the secular critics because most secular researchers are critics of evangelicalism or any form of uh, religious conservatism. And he says to them, he says, you need to overcome your prejudices. <laughs> That's how he puts it. You <laughs> academics need to overcome your prejudices. <laughs> Because in fact, evangelical men do, do a, a great job. And then here's what's so interesting. <laughs> now you and I, it would seem obvious that if you're committed and go to church regularly, but what the pushback I've gotten and, and the pushback that he got as well, Brad Wilcox was, well, maybe this is selection effect. Maybe it's good guys who go to church in the first place. But that would mm. lead to the question, mm why are good guys attracted to church? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but but actually, Wilcox says, no, my findings are that church itself does have an impact. He said, it's kind of funny because he's explaining this to secular academics, saying things that we think are just obvious. <laughs> mm -hmm. But he says to them, look, you know, it, at church, you get a message that men should be loving to their wives, that men should take care of their children. After all, these are souls bound for eternity um it it's right. a one place where you find messages uh, reinforcing uh, being a good husband and father it's a, the one place where you find other men who are interested in you know who, who will affirm your values your, yeah. uh, of being in, in your in your um being invested in your family and then he says you, you know you don't find it at work, you don't find it at the pool hall. You don't find it at that local saloon or tavern. <laughs> you know, he said, really, right. church is probably the only institution in America where you still get messages that support men who want to be good husbands and yeah. fathers. Yeah, yeah, that's, especially that's in our point. day and age. That's I mean, literally anywhere you go, you get the message of the opposite often, right? You get the the me-centered universe right. where. Everything's about your happiness or your own soul care, so to speak. Um, church is a place where they'll continually stretch you and push you towards actually pursuing righteousness and pursuing Christ's righteousness within the home. Exactly, exactly. And like I said, that's what he found. Um, here's another um, way of thinking of it. This is also, this is another sociologist, but uh, I have to tell you guys, um, this is the most controversial book I've written. Mm. I didn't think it would be. I, I would think Love Thy Body would be because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> issues yeah. like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. But in fact, at least in Christian... Yeah, you really, you really went for it in that book, uh, <laughs> Professor Grace. <laughs> no, no holds barred. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, gloves were, gloves were off, yeah. And yet, and yet, I have to. I, I do have to. For people who haven't read it, I have to qualify that by saying the most um, yes. frequent uh, compliment that I get on that book is it's so compassionate. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah. absolutely. And so you know, based on what we just said, someone who hasn't read it might think it's kind of polemical and harsh and sharp-edged, and it's not. <laughs> so so it manages to be, right. uh, you know, very very direct. And yet, at the same time, compassionate, and with lots of stories. Now that I'm a now that I'm a professor at a university, I get lots of personal stories from my students. Mm. <laughs> so mm. people who mm. read it say, "You know, you must talk a lot to your students because I get a lot of their stories in there." And you know, that kind of brings it to life. That makes it yeah. personal when you see how it's yeah. fleshed out. Um, and oh, and yeah. this book too, uh, the book of masculinity, is also also has a lot of anecdotes, um, but. But well, I'll tell you why it's been controversial. So um, my young female students are mostly feminists, you know, even, hmm. yes, even in a Christian university. And if I said anything positive about men, they would get triggered. You know, you, they, quick, quick question. Do you think they're knowingly feminist? Like would they self-proclaim oh, yes. that? Okay. Yes. Okay. yes I don't know if they were culturally that. feminist. They just kind of have that air if they were like, no, this is who I am. A, a lot of them will say, I, uh, yeah, I am. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, although I, I, I'm trying to think of some examples, I have some examples where the person did not, the, the young student did not 
claimed to be feminist, that still got triggered. You know, mm. if I said anything good about men, mm. well, women do that too, you know. Well, mm. yes, you know, men are strong. Women are strong too. <laughs> um, so that kind of took me by surprise. I, I did have some more progressive students who, who would get triggered when I said anything positive about men. And then I had male students who felt beaten down and discouraged and demeaned. Mm. And here's an example. Um, I, I, when I told my class I was writing a book on masculinity, one male student shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us, just like that. Mm. So mm. I, I got, and, and then I, I would get people saying, um, the first question everyone had, everyone, whose side is she on? <laughs> you, know, mm. you know, like, wait a minute, I'm yeah. just trying to be objective and biblical. I'm not, uh, I'm not taking sides. Right. Right. That's one of the things I've always appreciated about your books is you, you stick to the facts, you stick to what the scriptures say, and you're looking at it trying to say, here's what, just from an objective viewpoint, this is what it says, and this is what the data shows. And so what we have to do is reconcile with that, and our idea or concept of truth and metaphysics, all that stuff has to comport with reality. Um, that's... I like that. Yeah. 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 We are reality oriented. Yes. <laughs> uh, to, to use a phrase that was big in the last election, we are reality oriented. Um, and so often people's first question was, whose side is she on? Mm. Um, and, right. and so in my first chapter, I've got to disarm both sides, right? I've got to disarm them. And like Grayson said, uh, bring them back, bring them back to, you know, we want to approach this objectively. And one of the things that was the most helpful was I found a study by a sociologist, not a Christian, who said, you know, there are actually two competing scripts for men. And hmm. here's how he explained it. He, he said, he's, he gives up, he, he asks questions, he's, he's spoken all around the world. He's a very famous sociologist. And he said, uh, when he speaks to young men, uh, he asks them two questions. Uh, first, he asks them, um, what does it mean to be a good man? If you go to a funeral and in the eulogy, they say he was a good man. Hmm. Well, hmm. men had men had no a problem answering that. They said um, uh, integrity, self-sacrifice, uh, take care of those you love. Look out for the little guy. I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> Look out for the little guy. Um, you know, stand up for justice, protect and provide, and so on. And this was uh, universal all around the world, you know, from Australia to Switzerland to, you know, South America. Um, and he would say, well, where did you get that? How do you know that? And they would say, well, that's just in the air, that's in the air we breathe, right? This is how we're raised. And in the West, they would often say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Yeah. And then he would mm. follow up and he'd say, well, what if I say to you, man up, be a real man. And the young one would say, oh, no, that's very different. That's not the same at all. That means, in fact, let me see if I can find my notes on that one, because that one's, <laughs> I have to, I have to give you their exact words, um, because they said, um, um, oh, that's completely different. That means be tough, strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, play through pain, be competitive, get rich, get laid. <laughs> and, and that helped when we realized that, that men have these two competing scripts in their head. Um, it helps us to realize, well, the, the, the debate, I say, is not really between men and women. The debate is be between these two scripts that yeah. are both in men's own heads. Because it seems that everywhere, men, people are made in God's image. So men everywhere do recognize the script for the good man. Mm -hmm. They do in every culture. They understand that. In fact, um, there was uh, the first anthropologist who ever did a cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity, not of men, but of concepts of masculinity. You know, what do they think a man should be? What's their ideal for manhood? Um, and he found that universally men are expected to fulfill what he calls the three P's, provide, protect, and procreate, which means raise a family. Yeah. Universal. Mm -hmm. So men do, you know, recognize they are made in God's image. They know what the good man is. But culture is constantly pressuring them to live up to the real man, you know, man up, be a real man. 
So the good man versus the real man. When I put that at the beginning of the book, I found a lot of people kind of relaxed. Okay, you're not going to defend men wholesale and you know and ignore problems of abuse and so on. But you're not also you're not going to attack men. You know, you're not some raving man-hating feminist either. You're going to acknowledge that both of these two scripts are out there. And now, now the question is, how do we support men in living out the ideal of the good man, which they already hold? Yeah, that's the real goal. How do we support men in living out what they already know because they're made in God's image? Yeah, you you know, it's an interesting point because those are really two competing scripts for what masculinity is. And I and I think as a because I have five children. My oldest is thirteen. I mentioned her earlier, but I have three boys. And I'm constantly thinking about them and, and trying to help them understand, you know, that phrase, be a man, you know, be a man, grow up and, and exhibit manhood, you know, helping to define to them what that is. Our culture has confused that so much. And, and even in the terms of masculinity, right? You have these two competing scripts growing up in a world without any type of clarity. You know, thankfully, I, as, a, as a father, I'm trying to bring that, obviously. But for a lot of kids out there growing up without that clarity, how confusing and, and difficult must that be? I, I just, it's, it's, right. it's, it's tragic in, in a lot of ways with the age that our men yeah. and our young boys are growing up in. Yeah, I do, I do um, spend some time in the first chapter laying out kind of what men are up against today and how boys and men are falling behind on many different counts. You know, here mm. we are in a culture that attacks men, but in fact, men are doing worse than they have in the past. Boys mm. are falling behind in education, at all stages, you know, from kindergarten to graduate school, boys are falling behind. Um, I, uh, you know, I attend a, I attend, I, I teach at a Christian university. And when I first came here, we were about 70, 30, 70% female and 30% male. And we've been working really hard <laughs> to get it closer. The average though, in America, uh, on university campuses is 60, 40. Women to men. So yes, yeah, yeah. 60% women. men Mm. and more women than men graduate more women than men graduate from graduate school more women than men even graduate from uh, professional schools like law school uh, and veterinary school Mm. so in education uh, and there are like four times as many scholarships for women (laughs) as for men so you know meanwhile every university secular university campus has a women's center aimed at deconstructing male power (laughs) when it's actually men Mm. who are now falling behind uh and i mean it's Mm. true that that men still end up being in positions like president and ceo and hollywood's film director and so on but that's a very small minority of men right that on average men are actually going in fact even work um we are at studies show that we are at depression level uh, unemployment. It's just not showing up because mm. so, so many of these men have given up looking, you know, mm. that, so it doesn't show up in the statistics anymore. We're, men are dropping out of the workforce and their life expectancy is going down. In the last uh, four years or so, their life expectancy has gone down while women's has stayed the same. So I think we do need to start asking, <clears throat> what can we do to help men? Yeah. You know, we've got, we've had wonderful programs to help women succeed in, uh, in the workplace uh, and, and education, especially we put, put a lot of money and, and effort into helping women succeed. And that's great because they weren't even in it. Uh, they weren't even admitted to a lot of universities until the mid 20th century. So they've made great strides and, and we should applaud that. But now we need to also realize that men are falling behind and they need help, especially in the younger grades, because they, their natural abilities are not as suited. You know, they're, they're not as verbal and they don't have the fine motor control that you need to color and use, use the scissors, right. you know, in kindergarten. Right. So already in kindergarten, <laughs> they're falling behind. So, yeah, I, I think that it's time for the, our culture as a whole to start saying, what, what can we do to help men? Yeah. You mentioned, or at least from what I understand within the book itself, you're, you you mentioned the idea that many of these um, pervading thoughts, as far as what toxic masculinity is, um, how the cultural viewpoint affects this, began much, much earlier than what we see today. And so that that's a question I had, is just if you could expand on that a little bit more. Um, but also, I mean, perhaps I'm speaking completely out of ignorance, but do you see in any way that like Darwinian theory plays into this stuff as well? 
Yeah, uh, um, but I'd like to treat those as two separate questions. Sure, um, but yes, definitely. <laughs> um, the the bigger the bigger historical pattern is this. Uh, it goes all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, men worked alongside their wives and children in family farms, on, on family farms, in family industries. And so they were working with people they loved and had a moral bond with. Mm-hmm. And so the cultural expectation on men was much more of a caretaking role, um, that you had to be gentle and kind because you're working with your family and you were mm. um, expected to, uh, well, the, the slogan at the time was duty to God and man, you know, it's very mm. duty driven. And um, you expected not only to be a good father, but also a common phrase back then was father of the community. So mm. you're supposed to have a mm. fatherly relationship to your surrounding community as well. Mm. Um, and of course, men still had to have the sort of the s- traditional male characteristics because they were making their way in a wilderness. <laughs> so they still had to have resilience and strength and courage yeah. uh, because there were there were always a new, a new fields to plow, new businesses to start, and, and so on. Um, but but the, the cultural expectation was you weren't doing that for you; you were doing that for your family. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't an individual aggressiveness kind of. Um, uh, ideal. At the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, what it did is it took work out of the home and into factories and offices. And of course, men had to follow their work out of the home. And for the first time, they were not working with people that they loved. They were not working with family members. They were working as individuals in competition with other men. Mm. Well, mm. how do you think that would change the script for men? Uh, already, you see, um, in the 19th century, people began to complain. I mean, they didn't like the change they were seeing, but they began to complain that men were becoming a self-assertive, aggressive, egocentric, acquisitive, greedy. You know, the language like that began showing up for the first time, really, mm. as as hmm. people said, you know, you're well. And then, in addition to that, they were away from their family mm-hmm. all all week, yeah. which was a first. I was actually just so, thinking of that where, I mean, yeah. when you look at the epidemic of fatherlessness today and how many fathers are, even the ones that are at home are often negligible. Um, it, it literally just connected the dots in my head of saying that makes sense considering they've been removed from the home due to work, you know, whereas they're around 24 seven before no longer. Exactly, exactly. It made a huge change. So, so first of all, you see the rhetoric change. You see a, a much more negative uh, construction of the male character as people protested that, that men were no longer connected to their family and they were becoming individualistic and th- their work was becoming their idol. You know, I have some, some quotes from literature at the time saying, you know, their work is their idol and, and success and money has become their idol. Uh, the American man is losing his soul as a contemporary uh, journalists put it. Um, so that's now that, that continues through several stages. Um, and in the book, I, I trace some of those stages. And the, the, your second question about Darwinism is, is one of those stages, because certainly Darwinism had a huge impact on the view of men, men in particular. Um, because for, for a couple reasons. One is, um, instead of seeing your spirit, your soul, your moral will as sort of the dominant part of who you are, Darwin said, no, no, it's your animal nature. That's who you really are. That's the core of who you are. You know, the animal instincts and impulses. So the goal for men was not to aspire, you know, to spiritual goals. The goal for men began to be get in touch with your animal nature, with your, you know, biological impulses for lust and power. You start to see that in the literature of the day. Um, so the the make the main popularizer of Darwinism here in America was Herbert Spencer. And he literally said, um, in the struggle for existence, the men who came out on top were tough, mean, and even predatory. And so those Hmm. those are the characteristics that natural selection has selected for in men. Hmm. And you say, well, how do how do women get along with such predatory men? (laughs) And he said, well, it would help if they developed the capacity to please. And they also need to learn to hide their distress at mistreatment. <laughs> so, so that was the message from Darwinism. And I, and I should add that Darwin himself wrote that females were inferior to males, mm-hmm. um, that, that their uh, 
intellectual capacity and everything was was lower. He did acknowledge that they had more sympathy, more emotional empathy, but he said, but those are characteristics of the lower species. So even our, even women's good traits were, were seen as signs of her inferiority. Hmm. So Darwin also had a huge impact on uh, uh, inspiring a sort of disrespect for women. Uh, the language at the time was was like this. Um, think of think of Tarzan. This is when Tarzan came out, by the way. The Tarzan books were incredibly popular because what did they do? They showed a man who was raised by the animals and who kind of kept that beast within. And, and mm -hmm. so even the literature of the day, uh, there was also a lit literary genre called literary naturalism. Yeah. And the naturalists were basically, they were all Darwinists. Interesting. And they were giving mm. literary form to a Darwinist worldview. So these would be people like, the best known as Jack London. Mm -hmm. Uh, who everybody reads in high school. Uh, but Jack London yeah. read Spencer, who I just mentioned, and Darwin, and had a full-blown conversion to a materialistic worldview and uh, um, and intentionally was trying to communicate a Darwinian worldview in his, in his stories. Um, you and I didn't know that when we read Call of the Wild. <laughs> but, right. <laughs> but, you know, the literary historians are very clear that this 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 is what his intention was. And so that's why we need to read even literature with our worldview antenna out. Yeah. He, he wrote about dogs to kind of uh, to uh, cover his tracks, but he really was intending his message to be about humans. That humans are just products of genetics and environment with no free will governed by the laws of, of natural selection. So the, uh, I think another common phrase at the time was, you are, we are a beast under a thin veneer of civilization. That was the phrase, thin veneer of civilization. <laughs> you know, and so to be, a, to be a real man meant to get back in touch with those you know, biological impulses. So, and you will find that today in, go to the manosphere, <laughs> go to places like the manosphere where they, there are these groups that um, I, I even had a Christian student. <laughs> um, I gave this talk at a, at, a, at a student group once and a Christian a male, a male Christian student stood up and said, well, I think, well, shouldn't we re be recovering our internal animal nature? <laughs> and I thought, okay, this guy's been on the manosphere. So anyway, I, I think this is still a big part of the the concepts of the the real man that are influencing so many people yeah. today and the other side of it is see now you started out saying I th you think our culture is feminizing men they're, they're really both because on the one hand you do see the impact of darwinism still where people think well the way to recover being a man is to be rough and tough and you you remember the definition of the the real man mm -hmm. <laughs> um get rich get laid <laughs> I had to make sure you knew that was a quote, <laughs> not my own words. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but where do we don't we... want that one to show up as a uh, Professor Piercy quote. <laughs> on Good, <laughs> Good point. <laughs> um, but the, the other side of it is, um, I'll tell you whether it's of that art, you know, the idea that in, in a sense we're feminizing men, that also has historical roots. Hmm. Um, when the Industrial Revolution took men out of the home, well, who filled in? <laughs> who filled in yeah. for them? Mothers, yeah. female teachers. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time in American history, boys were being raised primarily by women. And mm -hmm. the leading psychologist of the day actually had a, has a, a colorful quote where he says, never in American history have boys been so wild and so half orphaned, mm -hmm. half orphaned. Mm -hmm. His point was, you know, the fathers are gone, so they're half orphaned. Mm. And so there was a lot of concern about this, that boys were being raised without their father's guidance and their father's discipline and so on. And what discipline and structure they did get was from women. Well, as a result, they began to treat structure and moral, moral uh, guidelines as feminine. Mm. You know, these are things women impose. And to be a real boy, which is the counterpart to the real man, <laughs> to be a real boy meant to rebel against those structures, to rebel against these, femi these feminine standards. Um, and and uh, in, in fact, there was a new word that entered 
the American vocabulary. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, people began to use the word over-civilized. Have you heard that one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my, my students hadn't, but yeah, I figured you might. Over-civilized. The idea was that boys were, were growing up soft and effeminized and um, and that uh, we needed to do something to help them recover their manhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and part of this also came out of the reform movements of the 19th century. In the, in the 19th century with urbanization in, you know, with the, the factory system and big cities growing and a, a public sphere growing that was, uh, you know, factories, banks, academia, um, uh, industry and so on. Uh, many people began to say, well, the public realm should be value free. Mm. You know, I mean, what we hear today, right? Don't bring your private values into the public right, realm. Right. That's when right. the, that's when that started. Mm. And so mm. this public realm was being secularized. And since men worked in the public realm, they became secular earlier than women did. Mm. And so people began to say, well, the public realm should be value free. Where, where do we preserve values? I mean, we still want to preserve the things that are no longer appropriate in in the public realm, like love and altruism and affection and spiritual uh, devotion and, and piety and so on. Well, they were, they were relegated to the private realm. And then who would be in charge of them? Well, women, because women were in the private realm. So for the first time in human history, women started to be say, say it started to be said that women were morally superior to men, morally and spiritually superior to men. I, I just want to press upon you because this is very, this double standard is very common today. I saw it just, just earlier today. I, I saw a, um, what was it? Some, I, I was flipping through, uh, articles on YouTube. So you, I mean, on, on the internet, so you, you don't always remember where it was, but two of the questions in this, uh, survey were women are purer than men and women are morally superior to men. I thought there's an example. Hmm. It had never been said before the 19th century. Ever since the ancient Greeks, the insight between right and wrong was thought to be a rational insight. And men are thought to be more rational and therefore men are more moral. In fact, you know what the Latin root of the word virtue is? Virtue? None of him. V-I-R. It means man. (laughs) Virtue manly strength and honor. That's what virtue meant. It's like the word virile, okay. right? Which means manly. Uh-huh. So virtue actually was what's thought to be a male trait up until the 19th century. So this was dramatically new that for the first time, women were seen as morally superior. As this public realm was secularized and men became more secular in their perspective. Um, and also male behavior, well, if they're becoming more secular, their behavior does begin to grow worse, especially young men. Young men are coming into the city and leaving behind uh, structures of accountability like family, church, village. And so in the 19th century, you see a great increase in drinking, gambling, fighting, prostitution. What else? You know, all the sort of traditional male vices. And that's why in the 19th century, there was a huge influence a response to that was uh, a, a, a ballooning of reform movements. But who led those reform movements? Women did. Yeah. And so once again, you've got this sense of, well, women are more superior mm-hmm. and it's women who have to call men out. Here's how one, let's see if I can remember This one historian who puts it really succinctly, she said, there was little doubt as to the sex of the tavern keepers, the seducers, the slave masters, um, Etc. In other words, it, the reform movements all had sort of an undercurrent of condemnation of males. Hmm. So the tension between men and women grows, and men began to say, "Well, being being moral, being virtuous, means being effeminate." And so, so, <laughs> so you get these two. You know, on the one hand, men are concerned that they're growing more more soft and effeminate because they're being raised by women and then there's a they counter that by trying to be more masculine and and that's where darwin comes in, in, in on the timeline <laughs> 1859 that's where darwin mm. comes in and and supports the notion that yes men really are brutes mm. under the skin interesting yeah so um professor piercy the uh 
talking about the um, preventing uh, toxic behavior in men, um, we think we'd all be in agreement, and I think one of the thrusts of your uh, forthcoming book is uh, for fathers really to invest deeply uh, into their sons. Uh, what are some of the practical steps that fathers can take uh, really to be more involved mm -hmm. in their sons, uh, the lives of their sons, really in the lives of their, their daughters also, uh, particularly in this world that is um, giving a contrary uh, message to that? Yeah, I mean, everybody knows that fathers are ridiculed and mocked in the media today. Right. They're, they're always, you know, the, the dimwit dad. Is, is yeah, you know, that's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting insight that actually when I was uh, growing up, uh, one of the things, and that was first brought to my mind, actually by my grandmother, uh, one of the things that she hated the most about television was the portrayal of the, the dimwit dad. dad the yep. I mean, I mean, but even, I mean, even back in, in her day of, of television that the, that the father was, you know, kind of the dummy and the husband was kind of the dummy and was the butt of the jokes and everything. So that's really interesting that you, that you brought that forward that just kind of sprung in my mind, uh, like the thing that used to irritate my, uh, my grandmother. <laughs> yeah. It, it irritates me too. Uh, and, and nowadays everybody knows that it's so common. Um, right. Right. And so where does this come from? I mean, we know, we know it's there, but nobody knows where it came from. Again, it's back to the Industrial Revolution. When fathers had to leave the home to work, they were no longer in close contact with their family throughout the day. They were no longer aware of their kids' needs. They were no longer aware of what was kind of the household dynamics. And so right from almost the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, fathers began to be portrayed as incompetent in the home, as you know, gotcha. as... Isn't that, see, doesn't yeah, make it does. sense. It does, um, yeah. It's, it's just grown worse yep. since then, you know, but it, all, right. all the way back to the beginning, uh, I have quotes in my, in my book from the 19th century where people began to say, you know, what, what does a father really do anyway? <laughs> What's the purpose mm. of a dad? Mm. You know, what does he accomplish? Mm. Um, what does he add to the family besides a paycheck? You start to see that language all the way back then. And so it, it's just gotten worse over time. So the answer then is, I, you, you know, you can't write a book like this without offering some solutions. So I do have a whole chapter on practical solutions. Like, you know, we can't reverse the industrial revolution, but are there ways that we can uh, adapt the work, the work structure so that men can do some of their work at home so that they could have a flexible schedule? Uh, and it's largely anecdotal. I talk about men who started home-based businesses, um, and sometimes it's as little as I, you know, a, a man that I interviewed said, well, I, I leave work at 4.30, two days a week to coach my son's soccer and basketball team. And he's, mm. and his boss got on him about that. He told him he was, he, he was, uh, uh, what did you, what did you say? You, you, you know, you're coasting, <laughs> you're coasting, you're not really working hard. Well, it didn't really hurt him professionally. And his, as his kids got older, they said, we want to be a dad like yeah, you, that's great. which is a lot mm. better than Absolutely. any workplace award. That's a high compliment. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. So I have, I had, I do give a lot of stories. Oh, oh. And this, this is not in the book because it just came out. So I'll have to tell it to you. New York Times just ran an article a few weeks ago um, on how so many men during the pandemic said that they got closer yep. to their children and they right. don't want to lose it. I thought, mm. what a wonderful story in the New York Times. So that's what I tried to capture in one of my, in one of my chapters was, um, and, and the pandemic helped. It did help because it gave me a lot of stories. One of my graduate students uh, was married to an IT professional who started working at home during the pandemic. Uh, he started participating more in the homeschooling. He started making some of the family meals. He, he started making lunch every day. He was there sure. to take the kids to soccer. He picked up so much of the family responsibilities that, that his wife, his wife was an opera singer. My student was an opera singer. Hmm. Uh, and she started a voice studio. And so the whole family benefited from the additional income as well. And, oh, and the time that he used to spend commuting, he and his wife now spend praying oh, together. Oh, wow. So he said to me, you know, I, I interviewed him and he said, I am never going back to a cubicle. <laughs> Our yeah, whole family right. is so much more balanced. So yeah. it, there, it, it can be done. It's mostly anecdotal because it's almost up to each father to work it out with yeah. his workplace. 
But I like to, I gave a lot of examples to help people, uh, to help them think creatively yeah. about ways that they might be able to do it in their circumstances. Yeah, you know, I, I found that. So in the, sure. cause I work in the software industry and when uh, the pandemic happened, a lot of, you know, just, it was, I could, most of my time is spending answering email. So I could easily do that from home. So I, now I work from home full time and yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't go back for anything because, you know, the kids get home and uh, by the time, by the time you add the commute on either end of a work, I mean, the, the and I have young children. So the, the actual amount of time with kids on a daily basis is thin because if I get off work at five mm -hmm. and there's a 30 minute commute, by the time you, you have, you know, dinner, prayer, you know, all that stuff you're talking with young kids, hour and a half, two hours before you have to start getting ready and thinking about bed. And, and that's just such a small, small period of time. And now right. I can take breaks in the day. I don't have the commute. If I don't have a meeting for a couple hours, I can go downstairs or have an extended lunch with the kids and things like that. So it's, there's a notable difference, a noticeable difference in our home, just from me. Um, it wasn't by choice, but I'm so thankful in the Lord's providence it happened that way. So, yeah, there was one study that said 65% of men say they don't want to go back, not yeah. full time. They don't, you know, they, they want to be able to work part, at least part of the time from home, 65%. And, oh, and, and this, in this survey, um, it was college educated fathers who led mm. the way, which I thought it was is. interesting. That is. Mm. It, one other question for you before we begin to wrap things up here. Um, and I'm just curious of your thoughts on this. There's so much false narrative about masculinity and toxic masculinity and, and out there. Uh, why do you think our culture continues to perpetuate that? When, I mean, clearly as you've shown it, obviously I, I know the statistics, the statistics aren't widely out there. You've had to dig for them, but why do you think our culture perpetuates this false narrative when these things are demonstrably false? I mean, you can see it. Um, I think that we have to chalk a lot of it up to secularization. You know, as our culture has become more secularized, um, I start my book, you know, in the pre-industrial revolution. So the colonial era. And part of that is because I, I, people say, well, what about, you know, Asia? What about, uh, well, wait, wait, I, I can only write one book. So to, to limit it, I kept it, <laughs> I kept it to uh, America. I did keep it to America. Yeah. Um, but secondly, it, it gave me a really good opportunity to contrast a Christian view with a secular view because the early Christian, mm. the early, early Americans were primarily mm -hmm. Christians. You know, the culture was very right. Christian. And so I could show the gradual secularization and as the as America secularized, uh, the the definition of manhood did go down. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. we've already talked about yep. Darwin, so that would right. be a prime example, though, where people began to say, "Well, uh, we're no longer holding up an, an ideal of men of being godly and loving and caring, um, and having integrity, self-sacrifice." No, it's get ahead, yeah. you know, look out yeah. for number one. Um, and there was actually a turning point. Uh, this, this, is, this was an important turning point. So during the 19th century, like I said, there were all these reform movements. Um, uh, so we're talking about there were well, the temperance movement. I'll, I'll give you a specific hmm. fact. Sometimes one, fa one fact helps you to have a peg to hang this on. In 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. Hmm. So alcoholism was huge and that's why there was a temperance yeah. movement yeah right. <laughs> there was a reason you know public drunkenness in, you know was a, of a big mm. problem you know people falling down in the streets in drunken stupors and, um and 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 uh domestic violence of course went way up yep, right. because husbands were coming home drunk yep. and poverty was up because men were spending their money on alcohol instead of spending mm. it on their families so the temperance movement, there's a reason for those, that reform movement. And of course, there were also other movements against gambling and against prostitution and against, well, uh, slavery, of course, the abolition movement. So there were all of these um, movements. But as I said, they tended to focus on what were traditionally male vices. And there was a turning point, a turning point. This was about the time of Darwin. There was a turning point where men began to say, I'm tired of being painted as a villain. I'm going to just take all these accusations and say, okay, fine. That is the real man. Fine. This is my identity. So this hmm. was an important turning point where at least in the secular mind, they basically accepted all of the negative definitions hmm. of men as, hmm. you know, more prone to vice, 
more more prone to sin, more more, more having more prone to to moral failure, uh, more prone to to drink and gamble and and have sex. I mean, especially in relation to sex and and uh, alcohol. They just said, okay, fine, that is the male character. So that was kind of the transition from the good man being still being held as, as the ideal, and the real man being mm -hmm. accepted as well. This is the real. This is the ideal. So as cult, as our culture secularized, it moved. You know, I, I'm glad we started with that yeah. distinction because now people know what we mean. The good man, the good man was eclipsed for the real man, mm. and and that's why. And, and so you say, so why do we have this negative view? Because because most people think today, at least secular people, mostly define masculinity by those more toxic yeah. characteristics of dominance and entitlement and control and power over instead of support yeah. under. Um, there are an awful lot of people who define it that way. And of course, as, as culture has become more secular, things like domestic violence have increased. And so there are more and more women who have experienced various forms of violence, whether it's, um, you know, b before marriage, things like rape and sexual assault, or after marriage, you know, um, mm. uh, domestic violence and abuse mm. have gone up. But I think we need to say it's, we need to lay it at the door of secularism right. uh, and that it has encouraged a much more negative definition yeah. of masculinity. Yeah, yeah the, the church needs to just in general do a better job of addressing that, I think, just just broadly through through discipleship and Christian education and things of that sort too. helping. And I'm kind of thinking out loud here. This wasn't something I've critically thought a lot about, but it seems to me that that's something the church could do and maybe should do through through discipleship and Christian education to help 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 aside from what scripture plainly teaches help our generation coming up see the problems of what secularization is doing as it relates to clearly gender confused all, all these things right sexuality but specifically toxic mm -hmm. masculinity because that's that's the leadership of the future right the the we we as a church as the church we need strong men who embody those those things of strong high character um, Christ-like character, right? It's the yeah, yeah it's yes, the Christ-likeness exactly. of it. Yeah. The church, yeah. not that the church isn't doing that at all, but I think it should be maybe maybe something for people to think about that the church needs to be very focused on that, helping develop Christ-like men as they grow up, because this this pervasive toxic masculinity thread within the culture that's out there right now, it's just so confusing. It's so I think it's so confusing for so many people and young boys and young men growing up because they don't know what reality is. There's yeah. just, you know, they, they don't have the, without the example, it can be really hard to, 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 to enact that. On the other hand of it too, right. you find people, I mean, you hear the word like meek, right? Galatians 5 talk, talks about this idea of meekness and yeah. people often picture it as a timid, shy, um, unmanly type of person, right? That has to embrace that. But the reality of what meekness is biblically defined is strength under control. So that proper strength is harnessed in a time of need when it's actually appropriate. Hmm. Um, so I think of the contrast between that and how Proverbs would define um, essentially the animalistic man. He is a, a brute, a senseless being, uh, no better than the animals hmm. of the field or the oxen. Hmm. And so what we have really are two disparate ends of the spectrum in our society today where they're happy kind of to fall in one of two ditches. And what we're at least trying to do biblically as we're looking at this anecdotally and also just logically as we're presenting data and saying here's what reality is is we're carving out a path that perhaps has been abandoned for some time yeah um but thankfully it's still nothing that's ultimately new right there's still that ecclesiastes reality that there's nothing new under the sun yep um, nancy i think you hit it wonderfully when you were talking about just these these ideas of virtue right they were cultivated in the home by fathers and um, as a team with their wives. And it was this, it, really it was a centered home and not a child-centered home, but a, a centered home around this idea of piety. Um, ultimately do good to neighbor and ultimately do good to your God. Um, we've lost that today, but how do we return to it? But by going back to those same Judeo-Christian Judeo roots that we've had for millennia, but they've been ignored or pushed yeah. off to the side, so to speak. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and the church has kind of the same split, by the way. You know, you have people who argue that this that the church is patriarchal and, and you know and doesn't listen to women, and then you have men who often feel like they have to leave their masculinity yeah. at the door. Right, you know? right. right. <laughs> we have kind of the same split in the church, um, and that that which is not surprising. We tend to reflect the culture, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, but but as a result, you're, I think you're right. We don't have a clear understanding of masculinity in the church that that avoids those two extremes. Well, Professor Piercy, thank you so much because we're about out of time. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. I I am I was excited about your book before, and now I'm like I can't wait to <laughs> to read it. This is it's going to be fantastic. Right. Same. Um, I did want to give you just a, a second. If there's anything else you wanted to say about how people can, can connect with you or find out more about your book. If there's anything else you wanted to offer out there about how they can find you or your book, anything of that sort, just give you a moment to, to speak to that. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, I, I do have an, a, a website, though it's being updated <laughs> for this book, but I do have one, nancypiercy.com. Uh, but I also want to say you can pre-order the book. It does help. It helps the rankings when there are a lot of pre-orders. So it's a way of letting Amazon and other bookstores know that we want this mm -hmm. kind of content. So um, if you have a chance to before before the book comes out, uh, do consider pre-ordering it um, on Amazon or whatever your favorite bookstore okay. is. Okay. Yeah, so the, the book again, the title of it, if you're sitting at home by your computer, uh, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity reconciles the sexes and I'll, of course, for anyone listening out there or on YouTube, I'll put a link to, to all that in the, in the show notes so you can find it. Uh, but th thanks again, Professor Percy. This has been a, an honor and very, very educational and, enli and enlightening to, to yes. say the least. Yeah, absolutely. But thank you. Thank you. It's yeah. great talking with you thanks guys. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Chorus in the Chaos podcast. Until next time. <laughs>